0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Something wrong? Hmm? Oh. No. No, I... I, I suppose it's just the thought of a little... Mylar and glass being the only thing separating a person from... Nothing. It's impressive what nothing can do to a man. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 27. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right.
1: Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be all-
0: Welcome to the show this Thursday, 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you'd like to call in and join the conversation today or put your two bits in on today's subject, certainly going into, I guess, what you might call controversial waters today. Today on the show, uh, i are going to talk about God, about religion, about morality and choice, and about the state and how it all plays in together with these concepts that we carry so deeply in our society. Um those of you who were tuned in last week on the show may have heard me talking about uh, faith funding, basically within the education context, and talked a little bit about evolution versus creation, because it was an issue that came up during the provincial election. But uh, I thought this week I might take the conversation a little bit past the basic, just the political points, because... Uh, I know this is a subject a lot of uh, talk show hosts would never talk about, really, because it's the kind of thing you don't talk about, remember? You don't talk about sex, politics, or religion. Uh, That's what you're kind of told never to discuss around the dinner table, because, of course, those are possibly the three most subjective areas in people's lives, and that's when you have all sorts of potential for discourse and disagreement, of course. So, first part of the show, I want to concentrate on God, religion, and faith. Is it really all about nothing? And you'll, you'll you'll know what I mean by that question in a moment. But let me first set the stage here. Um, we may have a so-called separation of state and religion, but I think religion plays a big role in politics and in how, in, how people vote. Uh, for example, The Economist, and this is about a year ago, last October, uh, October 14th, actually, wrote that religion is creeping into Canada's normally strictly secular politics. Mr. Harper has never made a secret of his religious leanings. He is an evangelical Christian, but has kept his own spiritual side largely under wraps, apart from ending his speeches with a fervent, God bless Canada. And in the 2001 census, 75% of Canadians identified themselves as either Catholic, Protestant, or just Christian, uh, though only about 25% of them go to church every Sunday. Estimates on the number of evangelicals range around 10 to 12% of the population. Again, another article, same time last year, same month, October 30th, 2006, from Time magazine. Very interesting, called America by the Numbers, What We Believe, and suggests that 9 out of 10 Americans think that there's something bigger out there. 77% of the U.S. population falls into the three religious groups, mainline Protestants, Evangelical Protestants, and Catholics, which is very similar to Canada's 75%, so it's almost the same. So we can sort of extrapolate that these things go right across the continent. Now, this is interesting, I thought. I wouldn't have used these um, classifications myself, but this is from the same Time magazine article. It's um, And they say that they basically classified God into four different types of gods that people believe in. 31% believe in in an authoritarian God who is deeply involved in daily life and world events. God is angry at sin and can punish the unfaithful or the ungodly. 53% of uh, African Americans share this view, as do 56% of people who strongly believe that God is a he and not a she. 23% believe in a benevolent God, who is deeply involved in daily life and world events, but is mainly a positive force reluctant to punish. People younger than 30 are the least likely to hold this conception of God, just 13% of them do. 16% believe in a critical God, who does not really interact with the world, but is unhappy with its current state and will exact divine justice. 21% of the people in the eastern U.S. hold this view, while just 14% of Westerners do. I don't know what significance you can tie to that, but that's the stats they come up with. 24% believe in a distant God, who does not interact with the world and is not angry. God is more of a cosmic force that sets the laws of nature in motion. 37% of those with household incomes over $100,000 a year take this view and 42% of the Jewish community view God in this way, according to these stats. Then they asked a bunch of interesting questions, and uh, broken down again into these four groups, and basically you have the authoritarian, benevolent, critical, and distant God, which all happened to basically start with A, B, C, and D, and uh, they postulated some issues. For example, abortion is always wrong. Twenty-three percent of the authoritarian God believers agreed with that. Seventeen percent benevolent, five percent critical, and one point five percent distant. Which I was very surprised. In fact, I thought those figures would be much higher. They're very low, even among Christians. And yet, you keep hearing about the Christian right being the you know the supporter of abortion laws, although they probably are big enough numbers. Um, government should allow prayer in school. Just about everybody. Uh, Majorities agreed right across the board, 91, 79, 69, 47. Government should increase military spending, um, 63 and 55% for the A's and B's, and 46 and 40% for the C's and D's. So not very much there. Government should protect the environment better, very high numbers right across the board, 76, 81, 89, 87. Uh, Government should distribute wealth more evenly. 57, 53, 59, and 63%. In fact, it goes up when you get down to the distant God believers. The war in Iraq is justified. Big, big changes here from the authoritarian God believers who say 63% agree, and the distant God believers are down at 29%. And those who trust President Bush a lot, 32% for the authoritarians, 23% benevolent, 12% critical, and 9% distance. So it really drops dramatically. In a general sense, 66% said, I have no doubt that God exists. 14% said they believe in a higher power or cosmic force. 11% said, I believe in God, but with some doubts. And 5% said, I don't believe in anything beyond the physical world. So that's sort of a backdrop of the statistics of a very broad overview of North America. I don't know what kind of questions they actually asked. What's really interesting is that I could possibly have uh, fit myself into a lot of the categories, depending upon, of course, definitions. So, nevertheless, given these stats, I imagine that what I'm going to have to say on the show today might uh, be a little upsetting to a majority of my listeners. I apologize, but the opinions expressed here are my own. I'm not trying to start a religion. I'm not trying to convert anyone to anything or from anything should just let you know, I was uh, raised as a Roman Catholic. You know, I was indoctrinated in the Roman Catholic faith. I was actually an altar boy right here in London at St. Mary's Church, and that was when services were still done in Latin, by the way. Um, you know, Dominus Phobiscum, Ecum Spiritu to All, if you ever knew that when you went to church. And I was even a member of the church choir, and i got to tell you, I had pleasant memories of most of the whole experiences. But today I only attend, like, church or religious gatherings on special occasions like weddings and funerals or memorials and things of that nature. But despite this, I have no particular problem with using the word God in a generic sort of way. If somebody says, God bless you, I take it as a respectful and friendly social greeting. And I think atheists and believers alike say things like, uh, thank God it's Friday, right? (laughs) You don't have to be a believer to say things of that nature but whatever else one may or not you know may or may not believe about god at the very least if for no other reason than because of its wide and prevalent usage the term god is a concept however one may interpret it i think the meaningful question is whether one's concept of a god is more or less real or unreal and beyond that what purpose the use of the word serves in a person's life uh, so before i give my own perspective of god and religion there's a couple of ideas that you know I thought I should address first and foremost, and I think uh, the first one is the interpretation of God as the creator. Now, this, is, this gets, of course, back to the creation versus evolution issue, but that's not where I'm going. Because the idea of God as of the creator is someone who created existence out of nothingness. In other words, it created existence out of non-existence. And I have a problem with this interpretation. Now, last week, you know, I briefly touched upon the evolution and creationism debate within the context of just faith-based funding. But personally, I don't see the debate being between evolution and creationism. I don't think that's relevant in the least. It's not either or. I think the two ideas are mutually exclusive of each other. And even if evolution didn't exist, the argument for creationism, that is, and by this I mean to create something out of nothing, which in this case means non-existence, is not even imaginable, let alone possible. All creative acts must destroy whatever existed before. You can create something out of something else, but the concept of creation from non-existence is a contradiction, to me, of of oxymoronic proportions. You can't even talk about it. To believe in creation, as I've contextualized it here, you have to first believe in non-existence, which is a non-concept to me. It's impressive what... Nothing can do to a man, says Adam Baldwin in our show's Firefly Opener today. You know, a belief, I think, in nothing, which means non-existence, can actually lead to literal interpretations of God and of religious parables and doctrines. And I think that's where a danger can originate. Uh, Believers often say that uh, atheists believe in nothing, when in fact I think it's a belief in nothing, here being defined as non-existence, not no values. Uh, that is a necessary prerequisite to any concept of divine creation. So, you know, to say that God existed before creation just still means that something existed and only pushes the argument for creationism one step back. It resolves nothing, (laughs) pardon the pun. So, if you can accept that too, if you can accept that explanation, why not simply accept the fact that existence exists? You know, there's a saying that says, uh, "There ain't no such thing as nothing, honey." Because if there was, wouldn't that be something? Uh, I don't know who that was attributed to, but it speaks to the fact that there is no such thing as nothing in terms of existence. Even humorously, I remember there's a Seinfeld episode. Did you ever see the one where George and Jerry are sitting at the table, and they're—I guess they're, they're writers for this this TV show—and George says to Seinfeld, "He says, uh, let's do a show about nothing." We've got to do a show about nothing. And Seinfeld's looking at him, and he goes, about nothing? What do you mean, about nothing? He says, yeah, let's do a show about nothing. And they discuss it for a while, and Jerry goes, I think you've got something there. And back again we are that, uh, you know, the double negative gives you a positive. So, you know, that's metaphysics and epistemology as humor. Now, nothingness... Can only apply to identity of something that previously existed in the form defined, not to existence itself. Okay, you can say, you you know, how many bananas do you have? I don't have any. There are none. That's sort of a nothingness. But you already have a fixed thing to be talking about, and you know, it has to apply to identity. People talk about nothing or non-existence as if it were just another form of something, because it's the only way you can talk about it. So. You know, to me, it's not a debate about creationism versus evolution, but between mysticism and reason. To argue that creation exists requires first a convincing argument, not only that non-existence can exist, and even saying it is a contradiction in terms, okay, but that from non-existence, existence can come into being. And even that's a contradiction because being is existence. That's what we mean by the supreme being. So, existence exists. That was actually an axiom that Ayn Rand postulated, and science is tending to prove it out. Um, This is axiomatic, meaning you can't prove it one way or the other. There's no first cause, let alone an intelligent design. And you can't say that existence came into being at some given point in time, because the concept of time is a measurement of distance, and it's relative. And it exists inside the universe. It's not like you could say, you know, time was going by and then the universe came into existence. That's not even what the concept of time is. Uh, past and future are, are really theoretical concepts. Uh, only the present exists. Uh, the past is what we call determined, which I'll be getting into a little later today. The future is the undetermined. It's, and both are theoretical in the metaphysical sense. They don't really exist Now, only the present exists, all the time. You know, there's that saying, time is nature's way of making sure that everything doesn't happen at once. (laughs) That's where you are. You're at a fixed point in time. And as we learn about time, we find that uh, time is not what we think it is. It's about, uh, you know, space-time is actually the correct term. It refers to a curvature in a space-time continuum, which I'm not going to get into today. But symbolically, and this is where I can go with the concept, God is the supreme being. God did not precede the supreme being or existence, because, by definition, God is the supreme being, and so there you have it. It's, it's almost a personification of the concept of existence. But, speaking of nothing and the concept of nothing and zero, you know, this was not a subtle subtlety to uh, earlier civilizations. I mean, I even went and did some research on the where zero came from and the concepts of zero. And and the symbol actually originated... Uh, first of all, zero is a symbol that can indicate both a number or an absence of a number. And it was first uh, came into use in the Arabic world in the ninth century, according to my sources. I know there's been some debate about that. But prior to that time, numerals only contained nine symbols. And if you had a number like 203, uh, the space for the zero was left blank or indicated with a dash. But uh, the zero has many functions, and it has expanded the field of mathematics and, and uh, made it possible for us to understand the universe in better ways. Uh, of course, addition or subtraction of a zero leaves a number as it was, the previous number. If you multiply something by zero, you get zero. Now this is important. It is impossible to divide anything by zero. And that's because there ain't no such thing as nothing, remember that. Uh, What would it be? How many zeros go into a 1? Any number. You you know, and that's why we were taught it was either undefinable or infinite. It could be an infinite number. But in geometry, zeros are used to denote a point of origin from the distances that they're measured, and or the starting point of uh, positive and negative numbers in math. Uh, If you're talking about a thermometer, zero is, uh, you know, how many degrees are measured. Um, You know, if you say it's uh, the temperature zero outside, you're not saying there's no temperature. You're actually giving a measurement of what the temperature is. So, zero in this case does not refer to nothing or non-existence, but to a starting point. And when we say the temperature is zero, of course, that's just a measurement. But when zero is a value, then it represents an absence of some given identity and quantity. I have zero money in the bank which is something a lot of us can relate to, but it doesn't mean your bank, your money, or you do not exist. It means you do not have a quantity of something you've already defined. Now, zero is the smallest number there is, but what's the biggest number? And no, it's not a Google. Google. I first learned about a Google in, in grade school, and I thought it was brilliant when the Google search engine named themselves after that number. I think it's something like a one with a million zeros behind it or something, but I'm not even sure about that. But it's a very large number. But uh, I remember when my grandson was just learning to count, and he was playing with electronic calculators, and he asked me one day, he says, Grandpa, what's the biggest number there is? And when I explained to him that there is no such number, that that one can always be added to any number, no matter how big it is, I could tell by the look on his face and the understanding and this astonishment and amazement that for the first time in his life he had glimpsed infinity, even though he wasn't even aware of what the word or what the concept was. And that's why we have to look to mathematics to discover, really, that we live in a universe that has no beginning and no end. And even though each form in the universe is always changing and does have a beginning and an end. So here's my question for you. If you don't believe in creation, is it possible to believe in a literal God who we call the Creator? You know, since I personally don't believe that there was actually an act of creation in the terms of non-existence to existence, and I think science is agreeing, certainly Stephen Hawking is thinking that way. So what role can such uh, a God possibly have? So, uh, and speaking of beginnings, you know, there's there's also a a quote in the Bible, I think it's from uh, Mark or John, I'm not sure, but it goes something like, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." Now, symbolically, to me, that always marked the beginning of consciousness, not of existence, which is another axiomatic concept, because the words we use and language that we use, we use to think, not just to communicate. And when we became sentient and could think, that's when we became something very different from the animals and nature around us. So... We're gonna take a quick break here and when we come back we'll continue on with a little bit different aspect of this not strictly on god but switching a little bit to the religious aspect be right back right after this
1: what are we up to sweetheart
2: fixing your bible
1: i um what
2: bible's broken contradictions false logistics doesn't make sense.
1: No, no, you you, you can't... Hit, so
2: we'll integrate non-progressional evolution theory with God's creation of Eden. Eleven inherent metaphoric parallels already there. Eleven. Important number, prime number. One goes into the house at eleven, eleven times, but always comes out one. Noah's Ark is a problem. Really? We'll have to call it early quantum state phenomenon. Only way to fit 5,000 species of mammal on the same boat.
1: Give me that. River, you don't fix the Bible.
2: It's broken. It doesn't make sense.
1: It's not about making sense. It's about believing in something. And letting that belief be real enough to change your life. It's about faith. You don't
0: fix faith, River it fixes you so as a conservative you might be pleased to know that marriage and religion are two of the they're two of the top two They're all of the top two. They they make people happy. Absolute marriage is one of the best investments you can make in happiness. Well, I am delighted. Yeah. So your book is crap. Therefore. Therefore, you're right. Okay. So marriage makes me happy. That's true. Yeah. And 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 God makes me happy. That's true. Well, I didn't say that. I said religion. Uh, Do you have a book about what makes people angry? No, but I think I'm working on it. <laughs> you're working on it right now. Yeah, you working on it all right. Welcome back to the show. This is Just Right with Bob Metz, and you're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. Well, here's a big question. So, do you really believe in God? And if you do, what type of God might you believe in? You know, it's funny, you'd better believe in God even if it makes you miserable. Did you know? And I'm reading from the CHRW volunteer guide that I was given when I started here. And it says, quote, There still exists in law in the Canada Criminal Code, section 296, which provides for a penalty of no more than two years imprisonment for the utterance of blasphemous libel, statements that are derogatory remarks about God. And this law excludes any, re- any remark made in good faith as an opinion on a religious subject, providing it was made in decent language, end quote. So it's interesting that a law like that is even still on Canada's books today, and it speaks to the history of this country and the, its origins in, in many religious roots, which you cannot avoid. And I think that's almost the conclusion I would arrive at at the end of the show. But... You know, there are so many concepts of God beyond the ones I discussed in the first quarter of the show there. You know, I was looking at at my Universal World Reference Encyclopedia. It says, all theologians and philosophers are agreed that we can have no adequate knowledge or conception of God, it says. And then it refers to the, the typical three methods that arrive at some idea of a supreme being, which were negation, eminence, and causality. Some people call that the argument from design. But what's significant is that they're due to a philosopher of the Neoplatonic school called Dionysius the Areopagite. And uh, that's just very interesting that it is from the Platonic school, which is, for those of you who understand the difference between Plato and Aristotle, basically Plato said there was a supernatural, and Aristotle said, no, it doesn't matter what you think. Uh, Reality is here, and reality is what exists. But, of course, a lot of people have uh, many ideas of God. You hear people referring to God the Father. I've heard people tell me that God is love. I've heard people tell me God is power. God is infinity, has no beginning, no end, which would be consistent with the supreme being concept in a metaphorical sense. God is perfection. God is beauty. God is unknowable. God is the highest moral order. God is everything. I've, I've actually heard people argue these things. But if God means uh, any or all of these things, then I have to ask, why are you using the word God to begin with? Why not just say love instead of God, if that's what you mean by it? Why not just say beauty or use the word that to you God represents? Why do we use that that word? I think in a large way, it's a personification, an easy way to talk about things. Um if you think about it, God is a personification of good. You know, God equals good without the O, and evil equals devil without the D, that old story. It's just a personification of good and evil. And, of course, I think a lot of people view God as sort of almost a Santa God, like a Santa Claus for adults, you know, who knows when you've been naughty and nice and who will deprive you of his love should you be the former, um, so I guess the question is, is the God that one believes in a symbolic God or a literal God? And it, the way I look at it is that a literal God is the unreal God. Only a symbolic God could be a real God, and, and that God is an abstract concept, not a not a metaphysical existence in the way uh, some people think. So, you know, I personally do not believe in deities in the sense of... Uh, a pre-existent existent. existent. It's it's, it's even a contradiction to say it. But I have less of a problem with the God concept than people who are called atheists in the the hardcore sense of the word, depending on its interpretation, depending on whether you're being symbolic um, or if you're being literal. And and of course, a deity, I think, naturally implies the latter, the, the literalness of it. For me, the best definition of God is is a supreme being. It's the only definition, to me, that's metaphorically consistent with existence in reality. Um, the supreme being, I mean, of everything. The, the existence of everything. The being of all. Which explains how God can be everywhere at all times. And I think that religion was often a way to convey complex concepts to earlier civilizations who didn't have... Um, means of recording their knowledge throughout generations that we have today. But uh, when we say that God is axiomatic, and and as is are the concepts existence and consciousness and identity, we're saying it cannot be proven or disproven, which means you require the concept itself to be valid. It's sort of self-evident. It's true without proof. Uh, You know, it's, for example, you couldn't say existence doesn't exist, or you couldn't make that argument because then your argument wouldn't exist. You couldn't say consciousness doesn't exist. You couldn't make that argument because you need your consciousness to make the argument. And so in refuting it, in trying to refute it, you're demonstrating the opposite. You cannot uh, do that, and that's why they're considered axiomatic concepts. And in many ways, I think God is simply the personification of these axioms. Uh, Some people use the word the same way other people might say Mother Nature. You know, Mother Nature is a personification of the forces of nature and the natural environment. And although we may say Mother Nature will provide, the truth of the matter is that human knowledge of nature and production are what actually provide for, for people. Now, in that clip we had at the, at the last break, uh, you heard uh, it was from the Colbert Report, he had a guest on who was talking about uh, what makes people happy. And uh, religion and uh, family, marriage, you know, were at the top of the list for a lot of good reasons. But then he made a distinction between the belief in God and religion, which uh, got a little spark going there. But I've heard the, I've heard it argued many times. You know, a lot of people are religious and don't have a strong belief in God. And of course, there are many religions that have no deities, and let, let us not forget that fact. But uh, the, psychologically, I've heard it argued that if you if you believe in a literal God, in the sense of one that punishes and rewards you, that that could make you very depressed and feel out of control of your life because uh, you're not as aware that your, your own actions are, you, you know, you're, you're responsible for yourself. You start blaming God. If something bad happens to you, it's because God doesn't like you. If something good happens to you, it's because God is rewarding you when, in fact, uh, the things that happen to you are largely in your control, but not all, all. And it doesn't mean that someone hates or loves you in that sense. And I think that's partially why there is a lower happiness quotient. On a more fundamental level, and this can't be denied, I don't think, is that there's this issue of knowledge versus ignorance. And it's not surprising that people will always say God is unknowable. uh, Because generally God, and I don't mean ignorance in in a... mean sense of the word. I mean ignorance in terms of lack of knowledge, okay? Uh, we don't know something, so we ascribe it to God or a God. You know, in days gone by, there was the God of thunder, Thor. People uh, didn't know what caused thunder, so they created a God, God for it. They had the God of love, Venus, God of war, Mars. There, was, there were gods for almost every single phenomenon that could be defined. And as soon as the phenomenon was identified and understood, well, guess what? The God vanished, and knowledge filled the void of ignorance. So it's not surprising that so often we find fundamentalist and literalist religion becoming almost a hater of knowledge, preferring instead to go the mysticism, ignorance, fear, and mindlessness, which they call bliss sometimes, uh, route, all based on a lack of knowledge or even a hatred of knowledge sometimes. And this is uh, Uh, you know, very significant to me. Like, even in the Bible, Adam is punished for eating from the tree of the fruit of knowledge, you know, because that's how morality begins, is when you uh, basically discover knowledge, which I'll be getting into a little bit later. But, you know, some people don't want to know, they want to believe. And so anything uh, to do with knowledge is immediately labeled evil. Um, You know, Satan supposedly destroys souls by means of temptation. And that word, by the way, temptation, actually referred to thinking. And it's interesting that we refer to Lucifer as the light, not the dark. Isn't that interesting? And so on this level of symbolism, I think religion almost becomes a vehicle of darkness. In fact, the word Lucifer, I think, I I looked in in an encyclopedia, it says it's a name that has been erroneously applied to Satan by some early writers, but was carried over to modern usage. It resulted from a misunderstanding of Isaiah 14.12, where it applies to the king of Babylon, and in Luke uh, 10.18, where Satan is referred to as lightning fallen from heaven. And, of course, Lucifer is uh, referred to as the morning star. Uh, The Hebrew word Satan was originally used to signify the intellect of man, and later, about the time of the Babylonian exile, it also came to mean enemy, or enemy of God, uh, like like uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian who conquered them. He was referred to as Satan. However, the word generally meant uh, man's will or intellect. And uh, interestingly, the Greek word for temptation, periosimos, literally translates as, quote, from evil. And so, since the word was commonly used for evil is Baal, spelled B-A-A-L, Temptation then comes to mean independent thought. And, uh, of course, independent thinking has always been the enemy of churches and religions because they want followers and not leaders or thinkers in that sense. But there is another side of religion. I would almost call it the generic side of religion. The actual word religion is derived through Old French from the Latin religio, which means taboo or restraint. And it is also akin to the Latin word religare, to hold back, or to bind fast. In other words, um, religion per se, or in the generic sense, is about self-restraint. The ability to restrain our natural impulses is really what distinguishes a human being from the rest of nature. Animals can't do it. And, uh, you know, Isabel Patterson, who wrote God of the Machine, got into this in a big way, just talking about man's ability to restrain himself, is what just makes us totally different from the rest of nature. We can actually think in terms of time. We can restrain our spending today and our gratification today by investing in abstract things like money and savings and and capital to make our tomorrow's better. Animals cannot do that. And of course when you you know when a person is said to exercise religiously or diet religiously or do something religiously, we know that that person has placed whatever they're doing, their exercise or diet, in a very disciplined order of priority, and repeats their practice quite regularly and with purpose, and hence, uh, you know, they're religious. I'm religious about a lot of things. (laughs) I religiously practice my philosophy of freedom, I like to think. But, uh, regrettably, you know, people who are not seen as being religious uh, tend to be the target of some faith-based religions and faith-based people. Uh, I don't like the word atheism. I think it's the N-word, just like the N-word if you apply it to racism, or the S-word if you apply it to labor, which is scab if you're not sure, or the D-word if you apply it to the environment or Holocaust issue, which is denier. In fact, it's almost literally what it is. Uh, for me, atheism is a non-word. It describes what someone is not. I touched upon that briefly last week. And it's only a word necessitated by the fact that so many faith-based believers exist in the world. I don't believe in uh, unicorns, for example, but we don't need a word to describe non-believers in unicorns, or in Martians, or whatever other uh, you know, abstract fantasy should cross our minds from time to time. I believe in something I does not make something so. I know there's a lot of people that don't believe that, pardon the pun. But what is real, I think, exists independently of one's belief, whether your beliefs are accurate or not. And uh, there are sort of three kinds of belief. Uh, one, belief with physical evidence, uh, which is reason. Or two, belief without physical evidence, which would be based on faith. Or three, belief in actual opposition to... Or denial of known physical evidence to the contrary, and those people would be called uh, members of the Flat Earth Society or something like that, where you actually know something to be true, but you refuse to believe it, which, uh, you know, brings me to an interesting point at this uh, point. the power of belief is unmistakable. You can't set it aside. And I've had that demonstrated for me many times. What you believe as a human being is going to affect you greatly, even if it is unreal. And if you need an example of that, picture yourself or another person in a room with four doors, let's say, but he, and he has to figure out how to get out, but he doesn't believe the doors are real. He doesn't believe they're there. That's his belief, even in contrary to the facts that the doors are there. Where does that leave him? He's got no choices, got no options, got no freedom. He's trapped by his unreality, by his refusal to believe that the doors are there. And as long as he keeps believing that, he'll starve himself in that room. And so you actually see that principle enacted in many, uh, sometimes tragic situations. But, uh, you know... Believing in something, I don't think belief is exactly the same as faith. Belief can be based on faith, or it can be based on reason, even though that might be not as frequently. But... um Nevertheless, I think that when people start departing too far from reality and from the actual laws of nature, uh, pardon the pun, but Mother Nature will make her consequences felt upon us. And whether you believe that's Mother Nature, Nature or God, I think that's something we cannot avoid. And now I'm just going to take a quick break, and when we come back we'll be talking about free will and morality and choice right after this. Do you believe in fate?
1: The idea that the universe is a vast pre-programmed machine does have a certain appeal. Not for me. I've always believed a man makes his own fate, that life is made up of a series of choices. I appreciate the fact that you have a a problem with this but but if people see religion as the source of their
0: morality and let's assume for a second that it's the good part the stuff we can all agree on don't kill
1: don't envy honor parents and so on where do atheists find their moral code from. I, ha- I have denied to you that, that religious people get their morals from, from religion. Okay. Religious people get their morals from the same place atheists get. Now it's quite difficult answering where we all get our morals from, but whatever else it is, it isn't religion. If you ask where do we get our, our condemnation of, sl- of slavery from, well that's certainly not from, from religion, it's from somewhere else. Now if you press me to say where do we all, I, I'm not going to answer where do atheists get it from, I'm going to answer where do we all get it from. But can't you humor me for that? No. Why Um, not? Because it's it's the wrong way to put the question. We all get our morals from somewhere else. I'm now going to try to answer where that is. Where is it? Um, I think it's from a steadily shifting consensus of moral philosophy, of legal judgments, of parliamentary votes, of journalistic editorials, of dinner party conversations, there's a whole zeitgeist which is steadily moving, and you can tell that it's moving because the moral outlook of today is actually quite different from what it was a hundred years ago and even more different from 200 years ago. There's a steadily shifting moral zeitgeist which is fed by this complicated interplay of all the things that I just mentioned, judicial decisions and, and, and so on, and it is across all, all of society, it's different in different societies, but it tends to move on a broad front. And with hindsight, you can pick out bits of the Bible, or the Koran, or whatever your holy book happens to be, you, with hindsight, you can pick out bits of the Bible that fit with the moral consensus of the century in which you happen to live. But the consensus apparently it evolves. It's a move I think. Piece. I think it moves. That, that's right. And you can kid yourself that it has something to do with your holy book because you couldn't, if you search hard enough, find verses of the holy book that agree with it. You have to ignore all the other verses of the holy book that most emphatically do not agree with it. You don't therefore get it from the holy book. You get it from this moral consensus, this modern consensus, and modern st- shifts steadily. And it's only with hindsight that you are able to graft it on to particular cherry-picked parts of your holy book.
0: Welcome back. I'm Bob Metz, and you're listening to Just Right on CHRW Radio 94.9 FM. That was uh, author Richard Dawkins in discussion with Steve Pakin on TVO some months ago on, uh, when they had quite an interesting debate on the whole issue of uh, religion in general and a belief in God. Of course, um, Richard Dawkins is the author of The God Delusion, and uh, was being grilled by a number of people on that show it's very interesting um you know when, when i was a kid being raised in catholic school i remember being taught in religion class that uh, quote god is everywhere all the time god knows everything that has happened and that will happen so in fact whether so in fact god already knows whether we will be good people or bad people even before we know that ourselves or before anyone else could possibly determine uh, which of those things would come to pass? And yet, despite that, we were taught in religion class, each of us has a free will. And we were free to choose our destiny, even though God, quote, already knows, end quote, what our choices will be. I used to think this was, again, one of the great mysteries of religion, but as I grew older and, you know, looked into philosophy, I discovered that what I didn't know then but do know now is that what our teacher was telling us in religious terms was about a greater philosophical debate, and that's namely the debate between uh, determinism and free will, which is very important to get out of the way before you can talk about morality, because if you don't have free will, you can't talk about morality. You know, and it's also been an issue within the physics and science uh, sphere as well. Of course, Albert Einstein uh, was known for quoting that God does not play dice. For him, everything was a fixed Issue and, and of course he always used the term God in a very figurative and, uh, and symbolic sense. Um, so you know, I could I could ask, was it inevitable that I would be, th- that you'd be hearing what I'm saying now and would it, was it inevitable that you were listening to the station right now to hear this? or did I actually choose to be here and did you actually choose to listen to this show? Uh, believe it or not, there are two entirely opposing yet logical, viewpoints to that very question, and only one is really correct, or maybe you could say both are correct, but in a different context. Some people believe that everything that happens is, in fact, determined, and this belief is called the doctrine of determinism. Other people believe that human beings have a free will, and that belief is called, of course, the doctrine of free will. And, uh... The question of free, vi- free will versus determinism has very profound uh, implications from everything from philosophy to science to religion to mathematics and ultimately, of course, to personal behavior of people. Determinism, as defined in some of the dictionaries I was looking at, you know, it says the doctrine that every event is the inevitable result of antecedent conditions and that, in fact, human beings do not have free will it's uh it's the do- in psychology it's the doctrine that personally or that personality and behavior are determined by physical, mental, and environmental factors, and it implies that if you could know all the interacting elements, you could predict everyone's behavior with precision, even to the point of 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 what they think because you know, the electrons that are zooming around in your head that form your thoughts. Uh, if you could know what they were based on, and and what was driving them, and what forces were running them, uh, that would be determined, and therefore you could almost argue that really you don't have a free will in that sense. Now, of course, on the other hand, uh, free will is defined as the power of personal self-determination. The idea that one's ability to choose between courses of action is not completely determined by circumstances. Um, and, of course, in philosophy it's the term used to describe a person's ability to choose between alternatives in thought and action as opposed to determinism. And it is based upon freedom from the necess- necessity and coercion of antecedent uh, physiological and psychological conditions and external restraints. So, basically, those are some dictionary definitions. In, uh, in, in science, or, or more what I meant to say with social definitions, in science... Uh, interesting, I was looking at a book called The God Particle, written by Leon Lederman, and he talks about, uh, you know, assuming we know the mass of a ball, say, and you can measure its acceleration, its precise motion can be calculated by a formula uh, that says F equals MA, which is force equals mass times acceleration. I actually took that in school, I remember that way back then. But its path is determined, the ball is determined, it will describe a parabola. And uh, But there are many... Uh, parabolas. A weakly batted ball barely reaches the picture. A powerful smash will cause the center fielder to race backwards. What's the difference? So, you know, Newton called such variables uh, the starting or initial conditions. You know what is the initial speed? What's the initial direction? You could you can it can start from straight up to almost horizontal where the ball falls quickly to the ground. In all cases the trajectory is determined by the speed and direction at the start of of the motion. So you can see how that might pertain to creation concepts that something had to start everything. But now comes a deeply philosophical point. Given a set of initial conditions for a certain number of objects and given a knowledge of the forces acting on these objects, their motions can can be predicted forever. So Newton's world was completely uh, predictable and determined. So, if everything in the world is made of atoms, suppose we know the initial motion of each of the billions and billions of atoms, suppose we know the force on each atom. And we had some, you know, mother of all computers that could grind out the future location of all these atoms. Where would they be at some future time? And we could say that the outcome would be predictable. And, uh, you know, among the billions of atoms would be a small subset of atoms called... uh, for example me bob metz or the pope or the dog or the cat uh, and these are atoms that float around in, in the universe so if you look at it that way everything is predicted and determined with free choice that's merely an illusion created by a mind with self-interest and that's why Newtonian science was very deterministic and the role of the creator because of Newton was reduced you started you know reduced uh, philosophers to thinking about winding up the world spring and letting it operate. After that, the world would run on its own, but follow all of those laws of motion. And uh, his impact on philosophy and religion was as profound as his influence on physics. Uh, out of all out of that key equation, F equals MA, um, so many ideas developed. And, uh, you know, concepts of probability are known to actuarial experts today, and they're all deterministic. But does that apply to the human being. Do we have free will? And where does morality um, start? And do we have a choice? And I would say yes we do. The fact that we live in a determined world, the fact that the past is determined, and the fact that anything we do and choose will also be determined once we've done it and acted upon it, does not, does not mean we do not have uh, a choice or free will. In fact, quite, uh, quite the opposite. I, I I disagree a little bit, or maybe not totally disagree, but would go in a slightly different direction than uh, Richard Dawkins did in that interview right at the beginning of this section, where he talked about uh, morals being uh, formed by consensus and moral philosophy and parliaments and journalists and, and dinner parties. Yes, that's how the message is spread, but what's the real source of morality? I don't think you really address that. And I think again, here we even have religious uh, stories about it, and it comes back to you know the Garden of Eden and that kind of, of story, where as soon as we have knowledge and choice, that's when we have uh, we know we have a free will, because you, ha- you 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 cannot choose between good and evil unless you can choose. Let's face it, you're locked in a cell; you can't be very moral, and uh, without knowledge, you can't know what's right or wrong. You don't know. Uh, whether that fire is hot, well, will it will it hurt you? Will it will it harm you? Will it be good for you? So you have to learn these things. And of course, a real morality in the world is one that's based on a standard of life and on reality. I mean, if you wanted to have a a moral uh, system based on death, you could have that. But what would the end be? You just let's face it, people who had a moral system based on that wouldn't be around very long, would they? Ayn Rand always argued that morality ends where a gun begins, mainly. Uh, insisting that uh, we are moral beings socially as long as we deal consensually with each other. And the minute someone uses force to get what they want from another person, uh, that is an an immoral act. And it's not just because you say so or out of context. There's a whole uh, set of metaphysical and epistemological rules that lead to that conclusion. So, as you can see, there are uh, many issues involved with uh, values and choice. Uh, certainly theological virtues of the Catholic Church, which were always uh, faith, hope, and charity. Uh, And if you go back to the Greek philosophers, the cardinal virtues and principal virtues and morals then were considered justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. Those were the four big ones. And, uh, of course, I think as we move on, we will discover that the virtues of humanity have to do with freedom and with justice, and they are reality, reason, uh, self and consent and when we come back right after this break just a quick conclusion of where all this has led to in terms of politics
2: hello i'm sister mary immaculate but i was sitting on the plane reading my bible it's a lovely little book the bible he dies in the end by the way (laughs) probably spoiled it for all you protestants
1: Do you have a view as to who Jesus was? Well, if he existed, which he probably did, uh, he was a Jewish teacher, of which there were many. He was one of quite a lot of similar teachers around at the time. Uh, And um, he seems to have gathered a following. He got his big break in history, I think, when, well, two of them, one when St. Paul took him up. And the second one, 300 years later, when the Emperor Constantine um, was converted. And that led to Christianity becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire.
0: That last uh, comment, especially about Constantine, I thought was uh, very uh, significant, especially in relationship to uh, politics and government in in the past and in the, and in the present. There's one thing I've learned from uh, studying religion from a historical perspective. It's that... And I know this might bother some people, but honestly, I think the history of religion is the history of politics. And that wherever you see religious beliefs, it's not the other way around. Religious beliefs sort of were a consequence of political conditions of their time. I was raised Roman Catholic in the Roman Catholic faith, and, and you know I was kind of surprised to learn when I went into my history studies that really the Roman Catholic Church that we know of today was formed not by a religious person, but by the Roman Emperor Constantine. Uh, In 325 AD, at the Council of Nicaea, one of the uh, most meticulously recorded historical events of what we might call ancient times. I mean, you just don't hear historians arguing about what went on there. And at that time, um, Constantine, going by memory here, uh, called all the bishops of, of his empire together because they constantly were arguing and fighting with each other. These were apparently uh, descendants and tribes of the disciples following Christ who uh, couldn't get along with each other even for one generation after they split. But uh, they got all the bishops together because Constantine wanted to make sure that they didn't have all different gods and, and kept arguing among each other so they basically had a vote and brought all the bishops together and they were going to vote that uh, they're going to have a single God instead of many gods and they also voted that Christ was going to be divine. Uh, The first vote apparently, there were two dissenters to the vote and they were promptly beheaded on the floor. And amazingly, wow, the second vote came out unanimous in favor that there is going to be a single God and that Christ is divine. The same same guy that the Roman Empire had crucified just before. Interestingly enough, also in my readings, I find things like uh, the image that we're used to of seeing of Christ in pictures with the man with the beard and the long hair. Uh, my understanding from what I read is that that image originated from Constantine's vi- uh, vision, actually, of the god Apollo at the time. And that was the image he perceived as being uh, the Christ. You know, religious mythology is is so representative of political patterns. Um, when whenever you see, even in a historical context, uh, even Christ on the cross, I think was a whole symbolic story of the collapse of Rome from its republic state to to falling to the mob under a so-called uh, democracy. So you can see how uh, issues of that nature. It's always been governments and and religion hand in hand. They they, they go together. In fact, uh, some of the problems we have today with some of the religions in the world is that they are state religions, and remember the state is the use of force. Governments are an agency of force, and when you combine any belief with force, and especially the initia- initialization of force, the initiation of force, uh, you can argue that such things are in any way really moral. You know, here here we are, we live in a supposedly Judeo-Christian society, uh, a society that was supposedly based on values that we see in the Ten Commandments, etc., etc., and uh, yet as a society, we can't even, in our laws, obey the Ten Commandments. You know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, well seems to me our social system that we have here is exactly based on the opposite of that. We believe in the redistribution of wealth. Interestingly enough, um, even among the religious, you know, who should not think that stealing is okay just because a democratic majority approves, but you have figures like 57%, 53%, 59 and 63% who think that the government should distribute wealth. And what they're not thinking about is where that wealth came from. That someone had to earn it first before it could be distributed in any way. So, uh, basically, politics is very much, uh, or sorry, religion is very much a part of politics. Uh, You know, um, certainly dictators and um, tyrannical regimes have always loved uh, their connection with religion and uh, the things that it could do for them because it moved. Uh, the masses, as Hitler was so fond of saying. Anyways, that's all the time we have for this week in terms of this whole religious subject. Don't know if that left you with uh, much to think about. Is religion really all about nothing? Well, there ain't no such thing. And if freedom of religion means anything, it means freedom from religion. If you have that, then I think you're okay, and it can mean nothing more or nothing less. So that's it for this week. We'll see you next week again when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right. See you then. Take care.
1: Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the everything will be all
2: right. Hello. I'm Sister Mary Immaculate. Let me tell you a little story now. When I was a young girl growing up in Ireland, I'm Irish incidentally, There was a girl in my class called Bernadette, and I was jealous of Bernadette. And when we made our first Holy Communion, guess who had the best dress? Bernadette! Bernadette! Only one Catholic shouted it out, Bernadette, and I was jealous. And when we had to do a project, guess who came first? Bernadette! Bernadette. This works better when the audience isn't retarded. (laughs) Bernadette and I was jealous. And there was a boy in the school called Patrick and we were all mad for Patrick. He's a great big tall boy, a bit like a brick house. And guess who he asked to the school dance? Bernadette. Bernadette and I was jealous. And a couple of years ago, I hadn't seen her for years and I was over in Ireland and I thought I'll see what she's doing now and Bernadette had put on So much weight, and she was over 400 pounds. And a funny thing happened. I was no longer jealous of Bernadette. It's a lovely little story, that, isn't it? (laughs) Big, fat cow she was. The Lord works in mysterious ways, doesn't he?